you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Kings chapter 13. First Kings chapter 13, and we'll be reading from uh, verse 7 through the end of the chapter tonight. Remember, we looked at the first, 11, first 10 verses last week, saw this man of Judah, this prophet coming and declaring that Josiah 300 years later would come and destroy the false idols and purify uh, the, the worship of the region. And uh, well, Jeroboam didn't take it well at first, but then uh, he, he ends up trying to buy off the man of God. So this is where we pick up with verse 7. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way, and did not return by the same way he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They told also their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. And went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I've been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. He said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. So he went back with him ate bread in his house, and drank water. Now it happened, as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. and cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place of which the Lord had said to you, Eat no bread, and drink no water." Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So it was, after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. When he had gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. And there the men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road, 
and the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which he has which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his sons, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it. Then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn, and to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and he mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! So it was, after he had buried him, that he spoke to his sons, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar of Bethel, And against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord, even heavy passages like this, we pray, will will indeed sit heavy on our hearts and guide us and direct us to your good way, and your good will for us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Color in pages if one of the kids wants to hand them out. Thank you. Well, we, again, we were looking at this beginning last week, but one of the things I think I noted at the end of, of our talk, uh, our section last week is uh, how sometimes th- seems, uh, some things seem perhaps arbitrary that God commands. And it can be very easy for us to get into a habit of, of reading God's word, and there are the things that we understand why this is a command, so we'll keep it. And other things that seem like, thank you. Like, there's not really a good reason or a good point behind it, and uh, it's arbitrary. Why would it matter? And therefore, God must not care about that command as much. We, we do this kind of thing. Satan loves when Christians do that kind of thing. We start dividing up the Word of God into what we think makes sense and what we don't think makes, makes sense as a command. Uh, I was just trying to think of a couple of examples of this this week. Uh, I, I think the first commandment makes sense to us. You shall have no other gods before me. The fourth commandment doesn't make as much sense to us. Why would God care what day we worship him? 
That he cares that we only worship him is one thing, but for him to say, I want you to worship me on a specific day of the week, not particularly the other days, doesn't make sense, right? We, especially in our culture, where we've gotten away from an idea of a, a holy day of the Lord, and so often uh, even churches that seek a desire to be biblical nonetheless have started doing things like um, uh, we'll have a Thursday or a Saturday service in case you're too busy on Sunday, right? Because it, it's arbitrary in our minds that one day of the week would especially be set aside by God for worship. But the fact that he only wants himself worship, that makes sense. So we'll keep that law. Or, or um, perhaps the, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We understand why that has relevance for the home and for the marriages of uh, our culture. And so uh, we, we say, well, that makes sense. Uh, no adultery. But passages like Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3 that talk about some kind of order in the home, leadership and submission, those seem more arbitrary, especially when we can pinpoint moments and couples where uh, one of the people seems far more uh, smart or talented or able than the other. And so it seems arbitrary of God to say it's always going to be this order in the home. So we, we push the order of the home aside as not as big of a deal in God's eyes, but it makes sense to us that we shouldn't just sleep around. Um, This is is how we play games with God's word, with arbitrary commands. Our passage gives us a really obvious example, and it, it wants it to look obvious to us. The first part that we looked at last week, God forbids uh, idolatrous worship, worship that's done in a way that he forbids. We get that. Why God would be mad about changing the religion itself. But not eating in someone's house and taking a different highway home, that seems really arbitrary. Why would God care if the prophet takes a back road instead of the major highway? Why would, why would God care if the prophet has a meal with a colleague before he goes on his way? That seems arbitrary. Surely God can't care as much about that. That's the way we tend to think. And yet this chapter clearly has a point to make to us. That if God commands it, he cares. (laughs) Even if we don't care, obedience is important to God even if we don't understand why we have to be obedient in a certain area or in a certain way. And once we start saying this command doesn't matter, the, the next step is Jeroboam saying, the changes I've made to worship aren't that big. That, that's clearly the point of this text. That's why after the whole story of these two prophets, 33 and 34, conclude with Jeroboam didn't get it. He didn't repent and he didn't change. He clearly thought God was still just being arbitrary. Or he heard the story and didn't think the lion was really from God after all. It was just a random coincidence. So we need to take it to heart that all of God's word and commands are important for us to listen to and submit to. 
as we think about that and walk through this, this strange account of these two prophets. Uh, first, as we look at verses 11 through 18, I, I, I'm borrowing here from the commentator Dale Ralph Davis, uh, we're, we're seeing the word of God. The word of God is the older prophet's calling, and he abuses that calling. The older prophet is, he is a prophet. He's not a, he's not a fake we find that he does really prophesy. He is really one who has been a prophet of God, but he abuses that calling. And we don't really know why. Uh, we don't know why he hasn't been doing his calling. That seems apparent that he hasn't been doing his calling. He lives in Bethel, where there's a shrine, and he hasn't said anything about it. If he had, Jeroboam would have killed him. So that's probably why he hasn't said anything. But that's still viewing the, the call, uh, the power of man over the power of God. Uh, now, this prophet, though, hears of a faithful prophet, and he wants to see him. And why does he want to have a meal with this young prophet? There are various theories. We can't really say which it is. But uh, some think that this prophet was intentionally trying to trip up the young prophet. The idea being that uh, he feels guilt about not doing his job. But if he can make the faithful prophet trip up, then maybe he won't have to feel as bad about not having done his job. That's one theory. Another is that he's testing him on God's behalf. Will this man be faithful? Uh, I think probably it's more likely he's just wanting to have fellowship. He... He just wants fellowship, and maybe he has an extreme view of hospitality. Here's a man of God. If I was traveling in his territory, I would want a meal. So I really need to give him hospitality. We aren't given the reason. But he does come and lie. He says to this man, oh, don't worry about what God said to you. I also am a prophet. Here's the abuse of the office, right? I also am a prophet. I too have had divine revelation. And God is, God is contradicting what he said before. He's canceling what he said before. That doesn't matter. This prophet, this prophet is an example to us. And whatever his reasoning is, God clearly counts this as sin. And we need to be cautious not to abuse our calling, whatever that calling might be, in the name of God and cause others to sin. There's a great danger here. It might not seem like there's any great danger for this older prophet. But as we read this chapter, we, we should be brought to see that when we cause others to sin, great danger can come upon them. And we, we need to be cautious about this. He abuses, he lies, he takes God's name in vain. We also see that the word of God is the young prophet's safety, and he abandons it. It was the word of God that in the previous section had withered Jeroboam's hand so that it no longer brought execution upon the young prophet. It saved his life. God's word brought safety. If he had just left as he was supposed to and not turned back, he would have reached presumably his home and been fine. But instead, he lets himself 
be uh, persuaded by a lie. And something we really need to take to heart is that even if the other party is sinning, we are still responsible for obedience. If God's word says something, we are responsible to see that he does not contradict himself. God, the scriptures say, is true. And every man a liar. And we need to have that firmly established in our hearts. Now, there are different ways that people view uh, God's way of communicating in uh, revelation, in the scriptures, and uh, in other ways. Uh, One way is uh, what charismatics or the Roman Catholic Church think about revelation. And that is that at any point, God can cancel out what he said previously. New is always better. If God says through this pope or this council of bishops, or if God says in some special dream to you something that contradicts the scriptures, then the scriptures get pushed to the side. That's been canceled out. This is more relevant. And sadly, that's how we often view things. That's without using the, the terms or the, or the groups I just mentioned. That's what this young prophet does. Oh, well... New revelation from God says I am supposed to eat. Therefore, the old command doesn't count for me. But that's not how the scriptures present themselves. God doesn't contradict himself. God uh, does not cancel out things he commands. Now, we, we get jumpy here maybe because there are those points in the prophets when God will say something like, I regret or I repent of doing something. And when we read, we might say, "Ah, uh-uh, there's God canceling out something that he previously said. But when we read carefully, we'll find that the, the original command or the original promise uh, included what God would do if the people turned from him and sinned. And that is what he's doing when he says he regrets or repents. Think of Saul, for example. When Saul is established as king, God says right out of the gate, this is your king, not my choice. And he will do bad things to you and among you. So when he later says, I regret establishing Saul as king, he's not saying, I've changed my mind about Saul. He always had that mind about Saul. The people are only now realizing it. Similarly with the prophets, when they experience uh, the the discipline of the Lord, sending them into exile, God uses a word like repents of the good he had done them. All you have to do is go back and read Deuteronomy, and you'll find that he's only done exactly what he always said he would do if they sinned. And so we need to have a clear sense that when God gives a command, he doesn't contradict contradict himself or go back on it. We will be held accountable for God's revealed will. And he reveals his will in the Bible. We are going to be held accountable to that. Whether we think the command is arbitrary or not, whether we understand the command, or not. Remember, God is all-knowing 
and all-wise. And you and I are not all-knowing or all-wise. Sometimes his commands feel unimportant, but they're still his commands and we must, we must keep them. This man does the exact thing he had just told Jeroboam he shouldn't do. He went back on trusting and obeying in God's commandment. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle John tells us what should be our response when we hear a challenge to God's law like this. He tells us, I'll paraphrase a little bit using our text, if someone comes up to you and says, an angel has said to me something that contradicts something God has revealed, what are you to do? Test the spirits, whether they are from God, right? If God doesn't contradict himself and someone comes up and says, what God told you, cancel that out because an angel told it to me. Our first response should be, what angel? What angel would disagree with God and break his law? Well, the prophet, the young prophet then is judged according to God's word Verses 24 through 29, we, we find uh, that uh, as he goes along his way, he is uh, killed. Uh, I'm sorry, disciplined according to God's word, starting with verse uh, t- 20. Uh, that the, the older prophet uh, brings his actual word from God now. And it's a, it's a declaration of death for breaking God's law. And then we find the younger prophet going on his way. And a lion kills him. And it's very important for us to note in this section what the lion and the donkey do. The lion kills the prophet and then presumably a period of time has passed. People keep passing by a corpse on the side of the road. And on one side of the corpse is a lion just sitting there. And on the other side of the corpse is a donkey just standing there until the prophet comes to take the body away. That, that is not natural. This is not a coincidence. That's what God's teaching us. This isn't a coincidence that, well, some, some old man said you're going to die for breaking God's law. And then it just happened that there was a lion in the region and killed him. No, a lion killing the man and then leaving the man, not eating. A donkey not running away the minute it sees a lion. The lion not touching the donkey. None of this is natural. It is God's judgment. He's making it clear that he, the ruler, the creator of animals, is behind this judgment. And yet, verses 33 through 34, as we've already noted, Jeroboam, Jeroboam does not listen to this uh, parabolic event. He doesn't, he doesn't learn from hearing what happened to this prophet, even though news of it seems to have gotten back to all of Bethel. He does not listen. He does not repent. Yet, verses 30 through 32 suggest that there may have been some who significantly benefited and learned from the events of this chapter. This is how famous commentator uh, uh, Kyle talks about this. 
He speaks of the older prophet. Thus did the wondrous providence of God know how to direct all things most gloriously so that the bodily destruction of the one prophet contributed to the spiritual and eternal preservation of the soul of the other. See what he's saying there is that in these verses, as we see the older prophet mourn over the younger man's death, bring him back and lay him in a tomb. It is a sign of the older prophet repenting. Now, you may read that and say, I don't see that anywhere in the text. But uh, I, I do think it is the suggestion of this text. There had been a point about judgment. You will not be put in your father's grave. But that young prophet will be found in an Israelite father's grave and retain a place in the land of promise in his death. Not his own father, but with this older prophet, he will be buried not only these two prophets or, or this older prophet benefiting and perhaps repenting when he hears all of this happening, but also how many countless Israelites might have come to the Lord over a 300-year period. Let me read you a few verses from Second Kings 23. 2 Kings 23, beginning in verse 15, talks about talks about Josiah 300 years later and what he does. And we read there, Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, that's the one from our uh, chapter 13 we have read last week, and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, both that altar and the high place he broke down, Josiah broke down. And Josiah burned the high place and crushed it to powder, and burned the wooden image. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were on the mountain. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar. And defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. That is, he's taking all the false priest's bones and the false worshippers' bones and doing exactly what God had said he would 300 years earlier, without apparently knowing. It it doesn't seem that Josiah knows about this prophecy, but the people in Bethel do. And so we read in verse 17, Then Josiah said, What grave is that that I see? So the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah, and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him alone. Let no one move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. What an astonishing passage. I I don't think Josiah knew the prophecy that had been made about him, but the Bethel people knew. And when he came, they said, yeah, you, your name's Josiah, your son of David. We've known about you for 300 years. And here's the story. And it includes these two prophets and they're buried together. Astonishing story. But the important part in terms of 
of, of our thoughts tonight, two, two things. One, how many people repented and didn't engage in false worship because they knew the story and the story was tied to the tomb. The sons of the prophet must have told others and they told others so that everyone knew about that tomb. That tomb is different. It's an important point because we don't know and won't know till heaven how many were saved by the graphic story of a lion killing a prophet. That's what famous uh, theologian Herman Vitzius, who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, his comment on this was that it was such a dramatic account that the whole story stuck in the minds and imagination of people for hundreds of years. It takes something dramatic to stick in people's minds for 300 years. And this was it. The donkey wasn't eaten by the lion. The lion didn't eat the man. Both uh, prophets were buried together. I think the other thing is what it suggests, it hints, about the two prophets themselves. They don't look like the ideal believers, do they? The one started off really good, and then he gave in to sin. The other, the other doesn't look good to begin with at all. He lies and he abuses his office. And yet Josiah says, they won't be burned with those who worship false gods. And they will remain, their bodies will rest in their graves until the resurrection. I think... It's a suggestion that they were both believers, even though they were both sinners. And what a glorious thought that is for us. Jeroboam ignored the call to repentance, but there is mercy with God for those who do repent. Remember, remember that prophets and preachers stumble and fall. But God's word endures forever. It could have been such an easy thing for the people of Bethel to say, look what kind of prophets Yahweh has. They're sinners. They're liars. I'm done. And it's so easy in our own culture with the lousy preachers that we have and the fallible preachers that we have in our own churches to say, what kind of religion must this be? I've heard what they do. But God's word, God's word doesn't stumble. It doesn't fall and it endures. So we need to hear it. We need to hear Christ in the word. He is not arbitrary. He is all-knowing, wise, and holy. Even when we do not understand him, we need to hear him. On the last day, all such as will hear him and obey him and repent and trust in him, all of these will be at peace when none others will.